Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Our guest today is Jeffrey Tubin, who was with us last time, so I do encourage you to listen to the previous podcast. Um, Mr. Tubin was a, a former former legal analyst with CNN, former staff writer for The New Yorker, and he is the author of nine books, including American Heiress, The Oath, The Nine, The Run of His Life. His newest book is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. That's the book we'll be talking about today. I'm so pleased and honored to have you as my guest and that you were willing to come back and talk some more. Welcome. Hi, Harriet. Thanks, Harriet. All right. So we we covered quite a bit of ground um, about um, McVeigh and the influences on him in terms of books and the assault uh, weapons ban. So what I would like to do now is talk, have you tell us a little bit about McVeigh's friendship with Terry Nichols, who we haven't even uh, mentioned his name, and what was the ideology that connected them to one another? Um, well, uh, McVeigh and Nichols met on the first day of basic training when they mm-hmm. were um, when, when they when they both enlisted in the army, but but they came from very different worlds. Although there were certainly connections between them, McVeigh, as I, I mentioned earlier, came from the declining industrial area of Western New York. Um, where um, the GM plant where his father and grandfather worked was shrinking, and as were many factories. Uh, Nichols came from um, a place that was in a comparable kind of decline, but it was the agricultural decline of the small family farms in Michigan. He, he, he lived in the thumb of Michigan, and uh, he... Um, his family was struggling to keep a small family farm in operation. So his parents also divorced when, when, uh, when Nichols was a, uh, was a teenager. Um, he struggled uh, to find his place, find work, um, and ultimately uh, enlisted in the army at age 33. He was considerably older than McVeigh and considerably older than most other uh, young recruits. Um, to, to, to the army. Uh, and in fact, uh, Nichols couldn't make it as, as a, uh, as a soldier. Uh, he did make it through basic training, but shortly after he was transferred to Fort Riley, uh, in Junction City, Kansas, um, he took a hardship discharge because, uh, he couldn't care for his son, um, uh, while, while being in, in the army. At that point, uh, Mc, uh, Nichols' wife uh, divorced him, and Nichols, in I think a particularly revealing uh, act, went to the Philippines where he found a mail-order bride, someone he thought would be sufficiently meek and subservient, not like an American woman, <laughs> and, and he wound up uh, marrying uh, Mary Fay, um, his, his second wife, um, and um, he, he returned and tried to, to, to make it on the farm uh, again. Um, it, it never worked. And uh, Nichols' you know, life was basically a, a journey from one failure to another. Um, and uh, 
but, but, but he found uh, the same scapegoat that McVeigh did, which was the federal government. He blamed the federal government for the failure of the family farm. And um, he too became obsessed uh, with firearms and the fear that the government might take away um, his guns. So um, the, the, McVeigh came from sort of the declining industrial world. Nichols came from the declining agricultural world. And both of them uh, shared the feeling that um, American prosperity was, was eluding them and the federal government was becoming a, a deeply sinister force uh, in, in their lives. Were there any other uh, commonalities, uh, I would say, um, that uh, drew them to one another that you remember? Well, well it was mostly a political alliance. They, mm -hmm. they were not, um, they, they, uh, it, it, they were both sort of taciturn, uh, kept to themselves. Both of them were skilled uh, marksmen. Um, so when, particularly when they were in the army, they would go shooting together. Uh, when they moved to Kansas, uh, shortly before the bombing, they would go into the fields and engage in target practice together. And they, they had silhouettes that they would shoot at. And for extra motivation, they put photographs of Hillary Clinton's face on the, the silhouettes so that they could shoot, shoot at her, which again, I think illustrates how um, they were not you know, freakish outsiders. They were part of the conservative movement in the mid-1990s. The, the Rush Limbaugh fans, the, the, the Soldier of Fortune readers, um, they, they were a lot closer to the mainstream that, than uh, people in subsequent years have been ready to acknowledge. Now, um, McVeigh joined the Army in 1988 and um, he tried out for um, the special forces. What happened with that? Well, this is really a major turning point in, in McVeigh's mm -hmm. life. Um, as I said, he enlisted in the army in 1988 and he um, was, a, was an effective soldier. Uh, he, he was a gunner. Uh, he, he, he was the, the person who shot the major weapons in Bradley fighting vehicles, which is a tank-like device. And he was sent over to the full, first Gulf War um, in, in, first right. in, in Saudi Arabia and then in, and then in Kuwait. And he won a bronze star there and he won a promotion. Uh, he, he, he fired a shot that killed two um, uh, Iraqi soldiers. Um, and uh, he, he was, uh, th this was a major high point in his life. And the thing he really wanted to do most was join special forces, also known as the Green Berets. Right. Um, and uh, there is a very re rigorous 21-day tryout for uh, the Green Berets uh, in Fort Benning, Georgia. And right after he returned from um, Saudi, he um, went straight to the tryouts. And on just the second day uh, of, of the tryouts, he withdrew because he just couldn't he couldn't accomplish the physical goals. He couldn't do the marching. He couldn't, he just wasn't, wasn't strong enough. And 
um, this left a tremendous void in his life because the only future he could envision was as a member of the special forces. And um, he returned to Fort Riley in Kansas, but just as a um, non-commissioned officer and not someone with any real future in, in the army. And he wound up um, dropping out of the army um, in, in late 1991 and, and uh, moving back to the Buffalo area where he became a security guard. The election of Bill Clinton in 1992 um, was one of the events that, that signaled his political radicalism, radicalization. And that was um, uh, where, uh, and, and that was the, the period when he really, um, uh, you know, left main, mainstream life and started living out of his car and going to gun shows and and ultimately planning the bombing, which took right. place in 1995. Right. Do, do you think he saw that um, inability to cut it with the Green Berets as, did he take it in, in a way that was very personal, that he was a failure or what? Well, th there was a, there's a pattern in McVeigh's life that mm -hmm. anytime he had a failure, uh, it was because there was something wrong with the people who failed him, not, not right, okay. because of his own. He never took responsibility for his own failures. For example, um, he briefly uh, went to a business college after high school and he left before the semester was out. But he told his father, oh, I quit because I knew more about computers than my mm -hmm. teachers did. Um, he says he, he, he flunked out of. Uh, the Green Berets, because the Green Berets were really uh, paper pushers, hmm. not not real fighters like he was. I mean, just an absurd thing. But but um, the 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 reluctance, the refusal ever to take responsibility for his own failures was was very much a constant. in this Yeah. Life. The thread that runs through his life. So how extensive was the planning that went into the bombing? in Oklahoma City, and who did most of that planning? How big a role, say, did Nichols have in the whole putting together of this incredible, incredible event? There's, there's no question that McVeigh was the driving force. McVeigh yeah. was the one who researched how to build a bomb of this, of this scale, um, who, who decided how they would assemble the ingredients now, that does not mean that Nichols was innocent. That was not true. I mean, Nichols participated in uh, stealing blasting caps from a quarry, uh, buying hundreds of pounds of fertilizer from farm supply stores. Uh, Nichols also uh, committed a robbery of someone McVeigh knew in Arkansas, um, which produced um, the financial wherewithal that allowed them to buy um, the, the, the racing fuel, rent the truck, um, cover all their expenses, but, um, all of the complex planning and deciding what had to be purchased and deciding where to set off the bomb, because they weren't going to do it in Washington 
McVeigh had never been to Washington. He knew there was a lot of security there. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to pick a federal building in the middle of the country, but he considered uh, Phoenix, he considered Little Rock, he considered Dallas, and it was McVeigh who decided on Oklahoma City. So um, there's no question that McVeigh was in charge, but mm -hmm. equally, it's equally true that McVeigh, that, that Nichols was um, a participant just um, of secondary importance. Right. And why, um, I do remember in the book, you talked about the different options that he considered. What was it about Oklahoma City that um, uh, clinched his decision to uh, target that building? Well, the main thing was, was a very uh, practical reason, which was, um, unlike, say, in Dallas, all of the federal government or nearly all the federal government operations were concentrated in one building uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in Oklahoma City. But even more important than that, the way the building was um, situated, uh, McVeigh could pull a truck right up to the front door, uh, which had a, a glass wall uh, in front of it. And he could inflict the most damage that way. There were no stanchions. There were no barriers um, that allowed, that prevented him from parking a truck very close to the building. That was the main reason um, he picked Oklahoma City, not because of any particular significance that Oklahoma City had. After the fact, he said he thought, turned out incorrectly, that the orders for the Waco raid came out of Oklahoma City. Mm. That's not true. Not uh, true. But um, it was really because he could park a truck right next to the glass wall and flick the most damage there that he couldn't in Dallas or Little Rock or Phoenix. Right. For listeners who don't remember the specific details of that tragic and horrific day, um, we've mentioned this before, the death toll was 168, including 19 children in the daycare center of the building. It was the worst case of domestic terrorism in United States history. McVeigh's views and possibly his legacy became clearest during Trump's presidency in that his extremism had spread to the Republican Party. A poll taken in 2022 by The Economist indicated that 43% of Americans believe it is somewhat likely there will be a civil war within the next decade. What do you think of the poll's results? Um, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I, I, I agree with the exact numbers, but okay. I, I think what we have seen and saw most dramatically on January uh, 6th, 2021, right. was that there are a lot of people in the conservative movement in this country who thinks violence is, is, is justified. And one of the things I do in um, the epilogue in, in Homegrown is, is show not just uh, how January 6th was an example of right-wing violence, but there has been a tremendous amount of uh, violence motivated by the same kinds of forces as animated McVeigh, whether it was uh, the, the mass shootings uh, at the Walmart in 
uh, El Paso, the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, the church in South Carolina, um, the grocery store in, in Buffalo. You know, uh, now, now the difference is that uh, these, these terrorists were able to get their hands on assault weapons very easily, and they were radicalized by the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, McVeigh had to go to all the trouble of assembling this bomb. Right. But these other, the, these other right-wing extremists were able to inflict enormous amounts of damage simply by buying a gun and shooting it at a people. Uh, remember, uh, you know, it, it was the assault weapons ban that was one of the straws that broke the camel's back for McVeigh to set off the bombing. And the easy accessibility of assault weapons is an example of how McVeigh's views have triumphed. Yeah. in um, subsequent years. The vi you just referenced January 6th. The violence that occurred that day wasn't the end of something, but the beginning. And at his trial, McVeigh's trial in 1997, he quotes Justice Louis Brandeis, who wrote, and this is a quote, our government is the potent, the omnipresent teacher for good or ill, it teaches the whole people by its example. Why do you think McVeigh, or what do you think McVeigh wanted to say by citing that quote? And what was Justice Brandeis trying to say as well? Well, um, let me start by saying that uh, Justice Brandeis should not be blamed for how his words uh, <laughs> no. were, were misused by McVeigh. No, no, no. He certainly uh, wasn't calling for... Uh, acts of terrorism right, of uh, decades after uh, decades after his death. Right. But um, I mean, I think what, what Brandeis was trying to say was, you know, very simple, that the government has to abide by the law because the government is teaching the public um, how, uh, you know, how, you know, be, be, the, how it should behave. Um, and, and it's important for the government uh, to set a good example. The, the twisted way that McVeigh interpreted that was that if the government is going to engage in violence like it did on, in, in uh, Ruby Ridge and in Waco, if the government's going to do that kind of thing, we, the public, are going to learn to do the same kind of thing. We are going to, we, I learned, McVeigh is saying, from Waco that um, violence is justified. And, and so that, that was his perverse reading of Brandeis. But needless to say, I think um, it, it, it was not a legitimate interpretation of what McVeigh, of what Brandeis was really saying. But, but it is interesting that, you know, he, he's obviously not a stupid man. I mean, the fact that he dug this quote out, um, he, he obviously was someone who read, um, but it, it, it's the way he thought, you know, the, as you say, the perversity of connecting what the justice was saying. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I agree. You know, McVeigh, McVeigh was not stupid at all. He was evil. That's yeah. different. Oh, yeah. uh, but but it is not uh, it, it's a mistake to think 
um, that that he was just that he was some kind of dope. I think it is fair to to describe Terry Nichols as a dope and as a follower and as someone who wouldn't have had uh, the intelligence, the energy, the determination, the skill to pull off the bombing if he had been left to his own devices. Uh, but uh, McVeigh did have all those attributes, but just in a in a deeply evil and perverse cause. Right. Do you see a direct line between the Oklahoma City bombing and what happened on January 6th? And if you choose to comment about um, Attorney General Merrick Garland's role today, and not just the insurrection, but the other cases against um uh, former President Trump? Well, I do think there's a direct line um, Mm -hmm. from McVeigh to January 6th. When you look at uh, the obsession with guns, when you look at uh, the belief in violence as uh, justified, when you look at the strange obsession with the founding fathers and the idea that uh, rebelling against the government, the federal government in 2023, is like rebelling against the British in 1776. All of that um, shows the connections between uh, McVeigh and and the modern day. Um, you know, w- w- one of the reasons I wrote this book is because Merrick Garland. Um, was in charge of the investigation as a mid-level Justice Department official in the mid-90s. He was the one who decided um, that the prosecutor should keep a very low profile, that the case should be as narrowly focused as possible. You know, it it was unfolding at the same time as the O.J. Simpson criminal case. And and, um, Garland didn't want um, the same kind of circus atmosphere. Um, I I think Garland, while he has been courageous in the cases he has brought um, as attorney general, including the most recent one um, against former President Trump, he has not taken advantage of the bully pulpit that's available to the attorney general to talk about the threats to American democracy um, that the country is facing at this point. You know, his reticence, which I think is born of uh, his revulsion at the O.J. Simpson case, I think that is um, an example of how he is not fully taking advantage of his role as attorney general. But, you know, that we are all it's products of our influences right. and um, that, that's his. Yeah. Um, In a recent podcast that you did that I listened to last month on Lawfare, the message seems to be that we must be more vigilant as opposed to less when it comes to domestic terrorism. Absolutely. And and, um, I I think, you know, to put it simply, it's because of the Internet that uh, these pernicious ideas uh, can travel instantly around the world. And if you look at the, the right-wing extremist acts, the, the, the terrorism of recent years, the internet is always at the center of it. The plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer was, was hatched over Facebook private chat rooms. Um, all, uh, so so uh, the need for vigilance 
uh, is even greater than it is than it was in the 90s when it was much harder for these extremists to communicate with one another. Uh, I think the government is aware of this. I think Chris Ray, um, the FBI director, has spoken about the, the severity of the threat. But in a country with free speech, um, it's, it's difficult uh, for the government to investigate uh, people who have not yet committed crimes. Uh, but I think it's indispensable. Well, we are at the end of our time together. Um, I just wanted to say that I um, was just given what I might call a companion book. Uh, it's called How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them by Barbara Walter. And I see the connection to your book. Uh, she references uh, Oklahoma City and the Turner Diaries and the Bay and everything. So in case people want to read more, that's a, you know, a suggestion. The next time on Pursuing Justice, we will celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Innocence Project of Florida, where a piece of my heart will always be. My guests will be Seth Miller, Executive Director, and some of our exonerees. The Innocence Project of Florida sponsors my podcast on Society Bites Radio. So please join us next time. And thank you, Jeffrey Tubin, so much for giving us your precious time today and talking about this incredible book. And I recommend it to all my listeners. Thank you again for being here today. And we will see you next time on Pursuing Justice. Thank Thanks, you. Harriet. Thank you.